March of 1980, construction workers working in the East Talbiot neighborhood of Jerusalem found an unusual discovery. The Israel Antiquities Authority was immediately called in, and a team of world-class experts, archaeologists, and others led by Yosef Gott excavated the site. What they had found was a burial tomb. What they found inside were ten ossuaries. Those were stone tomb boxes. Six of those tomb boxes bore common, mostly Hebrew and Aramaic inscriptions. Those six were documented, photographed, and then placed into the Israel Antiquities Authority warehouse. The remaining four, which bore no inscriptions, were placed in the inner courtyard of the Rockefeller Museum. Professor Amos Cloner, who filed the official report, found nothing remarkable about the discovery. He stated in his original report that the tomb had been used for approximately three to four generations, beginning around the first century. The tomb had been significantly disturbed, even vandalized in antiquity. While a relatively high percentage of the ossuaries bore discernible names, all of those names, according to Professor Cloner, were extremely common to that era of Jewish history. This might have been the end of the story, except that in 1996 the BBC found out about this particular collection of names and began to speculate on the heart of the matter that this might be the tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in March of 2007, a Discovery Channel special, The Lost Tomb of Jesus, has just widely publicized a number of the same claims. With this being Easter Sunday, I thought it would be an appropriate time to address some questions that you may have concerning this lost tomb of Jesus and the possibility that this could be the final resting place of Jesus' body. We need to honestly answer the question, what does Jesus' tomb mean for Easter? And asking it another way, what does Easter mean for Jesus' tomb? I believe Christians need to be honest and fair in our treatment of the facts because it doesn't do our faith any good to hide the facts, to exaggerate the facts, or to otherwise misrepresent the facts. Jesus Christ himself claimed to be the truth. So we of all people ought to be interested in finding out the truth and sharing the truth with others. I believe that all truth is God's truth. Whether we find those truths in the areas of Scripture in history, in science, in archaeology, or in linguistics. Christians need not fear that those other fields of study will somehow contradict the truth of the Bible if the Bible is in fact inspired and given by God. Now this morning, I want to cover just a couple of the basic claims of the Lost Tomb of Jesus group and tell you what they allege to be true and then share with you facts that either support or deny some of their claims. First of all, they would argue that the names of the six deceased persons who were found in that tomb are known for certain. Those names are Maria, Joseph, Matthew, Judah, son of Jesus, Mariamne, also called Master, and most importantly, Jesus, the son of Joseph. They state on their website, and I'm quoting here, when it comes to the ossuaries found in the Talpiot's tomb, there is absolutely no academic dispute concerning the provenance of any of the inscriptions, nor is there any question as to how they should be read. All leading epigraphers agree about these inscriptions. All archaeologists confirm the nature of the find. End quote.
quote. Now, furthermore, they would go on to say that not only are the names of these six individuals known, but also, with a high degree of certainty, their identities is also known. They would tell you that Maria is Jesus' mother, the Virgin Mary. They would tell you that Joseph is Jesus' brother, Joseph, who's written about in the book of Mark. They would tell you that Matthew is either Jesus' disciple by that name or a maternal relative of Jesus Christ by that same name. They would tell you that Judah, the son of Jesus, is, of course, Jesus' son, but specifically by Mary Magdalene. Mariamne, also called Master, they would tell you that she is Jesus' wife, Mary Magdalene. And then lastly, this Jesus, son of Joseph, they would tell you is none other than Jesus the Christ himself. As we pause here for a moment, I want to share with you just a little bit about what those inscriptions actually say. None of the identities of those six individuals are certain, and some of the names inscribed on the ossuaries are not even certain. The first of these names, Maria or Maria, the inscription written in Hebrew or Aramaic reads, Mer or Merth. This could be pronounced Miria, Miriam, even Martha. The interesting thing to note here is that variants of this name were used by a quarter of Jewish women, making it the single most common name of this period. Archaeologists that worked this time period will tell you that nearly all family tombs of this time period would contain one or even more variations of this name. The second one, Joseph. The inscription actually reads again in Hebrew or Aramaic, Yosh. This is a possible known contraction of the name Yosef, and it would have been pronounced Yosa, not Josie, as the Lost Tomb of Jesus group assumes. This name is the second most common name of this period of time, and again, it would not have been unusual to find this name in a huge percentage of the tombs excavated from this era. It's also notable that no one in Jesus' group or family was ever referred to by this nickname, Yosa, notwithstanding the Lost Tomb of Jesus group's claims that this is knowably Jesus' brother, Joseph. The third individual is Matthew. The inscription, again, in Hebrew or Aramaic, reads Matthias. Again, this is one of the most common names from the period. Then this specific variation of name, though common, was never used in scripture of someone in Jesus' family or of Matthew, his disciple. So we simply don't know who this Matthew was. Now the fourth character, Judah, the son of Jesus, this is actually the most legible of the inscriptions on any of the ossuaries. And there it says clearly in Hebrew, Yehuda bar Yeshua. Yehuda is the third most common name of the period, and some variation of Yeshua or Joshua is the sixth most common name of this period. And though the name is not in doubt, the identity is certainly unknown. We move on to the fifth name, the only name inscribed in Greek, Mariamne, also called Master. Well, that's what the lost tomb of Jesus crowd would have you believe this inscription reads. The fact of the matter is, that translation makes no linguistic sense by anyone who can read Greek. The letter N, or Nu, isn't even present, so the name has to say Mariamne, not Mariamne, and the two names are different. The inscription could conceivably be rendered Mariamne, also called Mara, 
but Mara is a common contraction for the name Martha and is never used as the Greek word for master. Complicating the issue is the fact that the inscribed names are clearly made in two different handwriting styles. This indicates the names of two separate women. And I remind you of burial custom of that day that after the body had decomposed and the bones are placed into an ossuary, then generation after generation, that same box could and often would be reused by multiple individuals. I have photographs of ossuaries from this same time period that have as many as six names written one next to or one below the other. And so if you ask a, a typical archaeologist that works this period, what does it mean that there are two separate names written in two separate handwriting styles? He would tell you that Mary Ame and Mara or Martha were probably two different women, and neither of the women's identities are known. Now moving on to the last inscription, and the one that's probably of most interest to us this morning on Easter Sunday, and that is the inscription that supposedly reads, Jesus, Son of Joseph. The Lost Tomb of Jesus group will tell you that this inscription is known with absolute certainty, but the original report filed by L.Y. Rahmani shows a high degree of uncertainty about this person's first name. Rahmani postulates that the first name might be Yeshua, but that would be based on the fact that there is a Yehuda bar Yeshua buried in the same tomb. He states in his report, and I'm quoting, the first name preceded by a large cross mark is difficult to read as the incisions are clumsily carved and badly scratched. Professor Cloner, who I referred to earlier, says in his report, looking at the same inscription, the first name following the X mark is difficult to read. In contrast to the other ossuaries in this same tomb, the incisions are here superficial and cursorily carved. Each of the four letters suggesting Yeshua is unclear. He says each of the four letters that in Hebrew or Aramaic would suggest the name Yeshua is unclear. You know, the fact of the matter is, looking at the Jesus ossuary, the one that is presumed to be his, there is no concrete evidence that anyone named Jesus was ever buried in that tomb. Now moving from these alleged names and inscriptions and even the identities of these names, let me tell you further that this lost tomb of Jesus group is alleging something about the genetics found in that tomb. And they'll state on their website that DNA evidence shows that Mariamme the Master and Jesus were most likely husband and wife. Now this is laughable from one standpoint because anyone who knows anything about DNA knows that there is no DNA test for marriage. Dr. Matheson of Lakehead University, who is a renowned scholar, did the sampling and the testing in this area. And Dr. Matheson has issued a written and a verbal statement denouncing the way that his test was used to supposedly prove that these two individuals were married. Because he says in his report, there's only one thing proven from this test, and that is that the two samples I was given, and I don't know who those samples were from, those two samples were not related maternally. In other words, they could be father and daughter, they could be paternal cousins, they could be half-brother and sister, or they could be simply unrelated individuals, 
he never said that these two individuals were husband and wife. There's simply no way to tell. Now, there is no evidence for Jesus being married or having a child, but I'm one of those believers who happen to think that it's okay if Jesus were married. If it is later proven beyond reasonable doubt that Jesus Christ, in fact, was married and did have a child, that's okay. Remember that marriage and childbearing were things created by God to be a part of perfect humanity. After he created Adam and Eve, without sin, he told them, be fruitful and multiply. So their marriage relationship, their bearing of offspring to one another, was something that God held up to be a part of perfect humanity. So this does nothing to destroy the biblical teaching that Jesus Christ was the perfect man. Even if he had a marriage, it would have been the perfect marriage. Even if he had born children, he would have done so honorably. And so, though I say that there is no concrete evidence, particularly in this tomb, that Jesus was married to anyone or bore children, even if that later comes to light, that does nothing to undermine the Christian faith in a biblical worldview. Now, the fourth area of study relates to the alleged statistics that prove that this had to have been Jesus the Christ's tomb. And what they will state on their website is that conservative mathematical statistics demonstrate that the probability of this being Jesus Christ's tomb is 600 to 1. Another way of stating that is that 599 times out of 600, this would be proved to be Jesus' tomb. On their own website, the Lost Tomb of Jesus group admits that this statistical analysis is based on at least six hypothetical assumptions. Now, I don't know a whole lot about statistics, but I talk to people who work in this field, and what they tell me is that if assumptions begin to be proven unreliable or altogether false, it destroys the credibility of the statistical analysis. So listen to what these six assumptions are as stated on the website. Assumption one, Mary Omne is Mary Magdalene. Assumption two states that Jose is the brother of Jesus. Assumption three, Maria is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Assumption four, Josie is not the same person as Joseph. This is actually an incredible assumption because Yosa is a known contraction for the name Yosef. And so the assumption ought to be that they are the same person. Assumption five is that Jesus, the son of Joseph, is buried in this tomb. And again, as I stated earlier, there's no concrete, bomb-proof evidence that anyone named Jesus is or ever was buried in this tomb. And then the final assumption is that there are a limiting factor of a thousand possible first-century Jerusalem tombs. This is simply an estimate. And according to National Geographic, in February of this year, there are approximately 900 similar tombs in this area of Jerusalem that have already been unearthed. So the assumption of the lost tomb of Jesus crowd is that there are only 100 more similar tombs in the whole rest of Jerusalem. And that estimate seems very low to a lot of historians. And there's another question, and that is, why limit the statistical possibility to just a Jerusalem tomb? Nothing says Jesus' family had to be buried in Jerusalem. The fact of the matter is they hail from Nazareth. That was Jesus' hometown. That's where he grew up and spent the vast majority of his life. 
And so the argument would be in favor of his actually being buried in Nazareth had he died the way that this last tomb of Jesus group postulates that he died. So limiting the statistics by a thousand possible tombs is a very lowball number. And again, these six assumptions just show you that the statistical probability, though it sounds mathematical, it sounds so factual and convincing, it's based on a lot of errors and a lot of speculation. But most importantly, the lost tomb of Jesus crowd is alleging some very crucial things about Christian biblical theology. And so I want to point these out as well and then park here for a few minutes. Because what they'll state on their website is that none of their interpretations of these findings challenge the orthodox Christian beliefs concerning the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. Let me read to you in their own words what they state on their website. They state concerning the resurrection. It is a matter of Christian faith that Jesus of Nazareth was resurrected from the dead three days after his crucifixion, circa 30 common era. This is a central tenet of Christian theology repeated in all four Gospels. The lost tomb of Jesus does not challenge this belief. Concerning the ascension, it is also a matter of Christian faith that after his resurrection, Jesus ascended to heaven. Some Christians believe that this was a spiritual ascension. That is, his mortal remains were left behind. Other Christians believe that he ascended with his body to heaven. If Jesus' mortal remains have been found, this would contradict the idea of a physical ascension, but not the idea of a spiritual ascension. The latter is still consistent with Christian theology. End quote. Now from these two quotes, it's apparent that the producer and director of this film know very little about Orthodox Christianity and what the Bible actually says. Those interpretations are completely inconsistent with Orthodox Christianity. So I'll say at this point that either the Bible may be correct or the interpretations of the lost tomb of Jesus group may be correct, but both cannot be correct because their truth claims are mutually exclusive of one another. Now, I'm not a blindly loyal Christian. I would never say, for example, that it doesn't matter to me if you can prove that Jesus Christ's body is in that box. I'd still believe in him. Are you kidding me? If you could prove that Jesus Christ's body is in that box, or ever was in that box, then Easter is dead. No matter what the lost tomb of Jesus crowd claims, if those were the bones of Jesus Christ, then the foundation of Christianity is destroyed. And here's why I say that. Because that may sound strong to some of you, but Paul himself says, in the book of 1 Corinthians, that if Christ did not raise from the dead in the way that he told us he did, we of all people are most miserable and there is no reason for our faith. You see, the bodily resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ are central tenets of Orthodox Christianity. Orthodox Christians have always held to the belief that Jesus Christ rose bodily from the grave never to die again. He was not raised from one tomb only to die and return to another. And it's not consistent with Christian belief to say that he ascended and today is a disembodied spirit in heaven. Let me address for just a second the idea that Jesus' body in a bone box is consistent with Orthodox Christian beliefs. The ossuary 
that supposedly bears Jesus' name has been measured, has been photographed. It is a box 10.2 inches wide and 25.6 inches long. It's barely longer than just the femur. Now, assuming that Jesus Christ was fairly short for a man of this period and was only five and a half feet tall, he would need a box approximately 70 inches long to fit his body in. So the idea of Jesus' body ever being in that box means that Jesus' body first decayed. The flesh was gone, and someone went back and unwrapped those skeletal remains and folded them over on themselves and fit them in a tiny box. Now here are three core truths that the Bible does teach. First of all, concerning Christ's resurrection, the Bible teaches a bodily resurrection without the possibility of physical decay having occurred. Psalm 16.10, written a thousand years before the time of Christ, King David writes, Of Christ, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Corruption is a Hebrew word that means physical decay. Later on, the Apostle Peter, preaching a sermon to a hostile Jewish audience after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, spoke these words. He said, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, You will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. The Apostle Paul, preaching later in Acts 13, said, We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers, and he saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. And what you see in each of these three passages is the same critical point that the soul of Jesus Christ would not remain in the place of the dead and that his physical body would never undergo post-mortem decay. So the idea that Jesus' body decayed was eaten by worms and returned to the ground and that later his disciples or family or friends went back into that tomb and put him in a bone box is entirely inconsistent with the Christian belief on the resurrection. Now concerning Christ's ascension, the Bible also teaches a bodily ascension. Remember that after the death of Christ, and after he laid in that tomb for three days, and after he came out, he walked around with his disciples. He was touched by his disciples, held by his disciples, ate meals with his disciples, and there was no question in his disciples' mind that this was their Jesus. And then days later, 40 to be exact, 
Acts 1.9 says that when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now the lost tomb of Jesus group wants you to believe that it's consistent with Christian Orthodox theology that Jesus' spirit ascended, but his body remained on earth where it died again and was stuffed into a bone box. But does that explanation fit the description of what took place in Acts 1-9, where he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight? You see, if Jesus' body had stayed with the disciples, there would have been no record of this event. The spirit is immaterial, so they would not have seen anything ascend into the clouds. If the ascension took place the way the lost tomb of Jesus group wants you to believe it did, then nobody would have even known that an ascension took place. Furthermore, why is there no record of Jesus in the book of Acts beyond this? If his bodily life remained on earth, what happened to him? Where did he go? Whom did he go with? Why did he discontinue his ministry? Why did he go into hiding? Christ's bodily resurrection and Christ's bodily ascension are clearly demonstrated in the scripture. And this third and final point that I want you to remember on this Easter morning is that the Bible also teaches something very specific about Jesus' resurrection body and also our resurrection bodies that will be renewed and recreated just like his was. The theory of the lost tomb of Jesus group is based on the premise that Jesus had mortal remains. But according to the Bible, he did not. The body of Jesus that walked out of that tomb on Easter morning 2,000 years ago was the same body that was buried in there a few days earlier. And yet it was different. In other words, there was both continuity and discontinuity between the mortal earthly body of Jesus that was crucified and the immortal resurrection body of Jesus that was raised up three days later. I know that's difficult to understand, so let me use an illustration that the Apostle Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15. In that chapter, Paul compares the resurrection of the saved dead with the planting of a kernel of wheat. And what he says there and we know this from experience, is that you have to sow that kernel in the ground and it has to be watered so that it rots and dies and decays before it comes back to life again. And when it comes to life, it is a stalk of wheat. And there is an obvious continuity between the kernel of wheat that was planted in the ground and died and the stalk that is raised up. But there are obvious differences as well though it was just one tiny grain of weed that was planted in the ground, it is raised up a stalk several feet tall, bearing dozens, if not more, different kernels of wheat on one stalk. So there's obvious continuity and discontinuity between that kernel and that stalk. That kernel of wheat does not become a stalk of beans. It's always going to be a stalk of wheat. But neither does that kernel of wheat become an invisible, ethereal, spirit stock of wheat. And Paul uses this to illustrate the resurrection body of Jesus and every other resurrection body that Christ will raise up by His power. He goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 15, 42, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. 
It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. In verse 53, he says that this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. In other words, the Christian belief in the resurrection means that God has renewed and restored and recreated that mortal body and has changed it into its glorified, immortal, perfect form. The Bible claims that Jesus is the first fruits of this kind of resurrection, meaning that all believers will follow him in kind, and our bodies will be raised up and renewed and perfected just as his was. Now, in the few moments that remain, I want to ask the question so what? What difference does it make practically whether Jesus' mortal remains were raised up and perfected or if it's just his spirit that's in heaven? What difference does it make to us today living on this earth? Well, let's assume for a moment that the lost tomb of Jesus' group is correct in their assumptions that they state as fact. Let's assume that Jesus died and was buried and there are his bones. At the very least, this means that ultimately there was no bodily resurrection or ascension. Jesus' spirit might be in heaven, whatever that means, but his body has been swallowed up by the earth. If this is true, the Bible contains very damaging lies about its central figure. It means that God made promises concerning his only begotten son that God did not keep. If those are Jesus' bones, then God never proved his power and authority over physical death. The way God left the body of his own son would seem to indicate that death is more powerful than God. Why would he leave his own son's body to decay and be eaten by the earth if he had the power to prevent it? So what does that mean for us if we become children of God through faith in Christ? What will God do with our bodies? Why would we believe God held power over spiritual death if he doesn't even seem to hold power over something lesser like physical death? We wouldn't believe it. That's like me asking you to believe that I can bench press 500 pounds 20 times after you've just seen me try to lift 250 pounds and I can't even do it once. We'd have no reason to believe that Christ could raise our souls from the dead to live with Him eternally because He wouldn't have proved anything. Also, why would we believe that God has any right at all to tell us what we do with our mortal bodies in this brief life? If they go in the ground only to see decay, and that is the end, who is God to tell us He owns our bodies? Who is Christ to tell us that He died to redeem us, including our bodies? What did He redeem us for? When did He redeem us for? If our bodies go in the earth, and that is the end, physical death has a partial victory over the power of God. Now let's assume that the Bible is correct. Jesus Christ entered this earth through a virgin's womb, born of the Holy Spirit, because He was, as we said from the Nicene Creed this morning, very God of very God. Jesus grew and lived a perfect life. He met every demand of the law that you and I have failed to meet. And then he went to a cross and was crucified. And he died not for any sins that he committed, but for our sins. He gave himself for us and was buried in a borrowed tomb 
And on the morning of the third day, that tomb was empty, though it had been secured nonstop by a Roman guard. Little by little, Jesus began appearing to his disciples, and not as a ghost, not as an ethereal, airy-fairy kind of spirit Jesus, but as perfect humanity. The disciples saw his wounds. They touched his wounds. They held him in their arms. They ate with him. There's the continuity. Jesus was immediately recognizable to them as Jesus. But Jesus also entered locked rooms without doors being opened to him. And there's the discontinuity. Because obviously Jesus' body was not merely mortal anymore. And for 40 straight days, Jesus traveled about and presented himself alive after his crucifixion. He showed himself to individuals, to small groups, even to a group of more than 500 people at one time. And then his disciples looked on as that same Jesus who had been with them for those 40 days was lifted up into heaven out of their sight. What would this mean for us? It would mean that God has demonstrated his power and authority over everything, including physical death itself. We have every reason to believe that God can save our souls that we can't see if he's demonstrated the ability to save our bodies from decay and that we can see. This would mean we have nothing to fear in death and everything to hope in God. It would also mean that God's promises concerning our own resurrection bodies can be trusted. It would mean that there's ultimate meaning and purpose behind what we do with these mortal bodies because death is not the end even for our bodies. Death for the believer is simply the gateway into God transforming and perfecting that which he had earlier created and then promised to save by grace through faith. It would mean God has promises and demands concerning both our souls and bodies. And this is foundational to a Christian worldview because God in Genesis 1 created both soul and body. And then when sin entered the world, both soul and body were marred by sin. Both soul and body fell under the condemnation of the law. Both soul and body faced death and decay. But in his restoration of all things, Jesus Christ, our Savior, came and redeemed both soul and body. You see, if the story ends the way the lost tomb of Jesus tells you it ends, that means that sin has won a partial victory over God. But if the story ends the way the Scripture teaches that it does, it means that Christ has won a complete victory. What does that mean for you this morning? It means you know you can find forgiveness and freedom in the One who said death is swallowed up in victory. It means you can find eternal and abundant life in the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And it means you can find hope in the one who promised to transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Death physically and spiritually comes only as a result of sin. It was never part of God's original ideal plan for the way that we lived our lives. And so death entered the picture because of sin, but Christ came, and on a cross, He paid the price and penalty for our sin. And then when He rose up from the grave bodily and ascended up into heaven, He forever lives and stands before God and intercedes for us 
And as the song says that we're about to sing in just a moment, Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. Your bleeding sacrifice on your behalf appears. What a great joy. What a great confidence. What a great hope to know that today, before the throne of God, our Savior stands, holding forth His wounded hands, the wounds of the nails, and He says before God the Father, This is for them. This is for my people. Forgive them. Forgive them. Give them freedom through these wounds. Edward Shalito writes in Jesus of the Scars, The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. You see, one of the things I love about the knowledge of Jesus' bodily resurrection is that we will appear with him in heaven one day by faith, and we will see those wounds, and we will know in that moment how the wounds of Christ that he still bears in his perfected body have always testified of grace to the Father's heart. So there is hope for you this morning. If you know Christ this morning and you are found in Him, there is great hope. And if you do not know Christ this morning, but you want to look to Him and be found in Him, there is also hope extended to you in these wounds. That one day, by faith in what Christ has done for you by His life and death and resurrection and ascension, and present day ministry as a body and soul, a complete perfect human, you also can be saved. You also can be set free. You also can be forgiven. And you also can participate in the resurrection of the dead in the way that Christ ultimately plans for you to participate, becoming like Him, being perfected by the one who has the power and authority to subject all things to himself and be glorified through all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.